Good morning. I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. I know it's been a few months, um, but we are back in the book of Acts. Uh, we are this time going to go through, the, through to the end, so no more breaks. Um, it'll take us uh, a, little, a little bit, but we will go through uh, and finish this great book of Acts. This is the, now the third part of the book of Acts. So we mentioned uh, when we started the book of Acts that Acts 1.8 uh, this powerful verse that a lot of people know from the book of Acts, uh, where Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That actually acts as this, this outline for the book of Acts. So there are some people, uh, the, the, the initial first portion of the book takes place in Jerusalem, then it takes place in Judea and Samaria, and then the gospel spreads out to the ends of the earth. And so we are now in that third portion of the book of Acts, where the gospel goes to the nations. It's not to Jerusalem, it's not to Judea and Samaria, now it's to the ends of the earth. And we're going to see what it looks like when the Holy Spirit sends out the church. <laughs> when the Holy Spirit launch, launches his church out into the world. Look with me in Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 25. Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 25. It says this, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Barjesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist of darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed, and when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. That your word shapes us, that you speak to us from your word, God, I pray that this morning we would have ears to hear what you're saying. This morning we would be ready to listen to you as we open up your word and discuss what it means for our lives. God, I pray that we as a church would be ready to hear and have a heart that is ready to apply it. That we would long to be the church that you've called us to be. That we would desire to be molded and shaped in the image of Jesus and to be doing the things that you've called us to do, Father. So today, challenge us from your word, shape us and mold us Make us into the image that you are creating us to be. We love you and praise you, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, in ancient China, uh, about the same time as uh, Jesus lived, just on the other side of the continent, uh, there was a guy named uh, Wang Meng who lived uh, during the Han Dynasty. And this is a really bad time.
time for the Han Dynasty. Things weren't going very well. A lot of public distrust in, in the dynasty and the emperor. Uh, and so Wang Meng uh, a, was a religious leader, Confucian scholar. And like any good religious leader, Wang Meng decided that he should overthrow the government. Uh, if the NRA is listening on, uh, or not NRA, what is the NSA, if they're listening on podcast, that was a joke. Um, <laughs> but like he, he decided he, he, knew, he knew better than the emperor, he could, he could overthrow the government. And so he got, he got a bunch of religious uh, followers together, and then he turned them into political followers. And then they launched a coup, and they actually overthrew the Han Dynasty. Uh, they kicked the, the emperor off of his throne. And, and I can just picture Wang Meng for the first time sitting down on the imperial throne and thinking, I can't believe that worked. Right? Like, I, I, just a couple days ago, I was a religious leader, a Confucian scholar, and now I'm the, the emperor of a unified China. Right? Like, that's... That is a crazy turn of events. Uh, and, and so all of the followers around Wang Meng, they all started asking the question, okay, um, what now? <laughs> right? We, we overthrew the government. We put you on the throne. Uh, what do we do now? Where do we go from here? Your government has been established. What's next? And we get the very similar sense from the early church here in Acts chapter 12 that I know it's been a while since we've been in the book of, the, uh, book of Acts, so I'll catch you guys up. But at the beginning of Acts, uh, the church starts in Jerusalem, and it, it starts with Jews. That, that the, the Jews come to know Christ in Jerusalem. They start a church in Jerusalem, then they be, they're persecuted. And so the church spreads out beyond Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria, and it spreads to the Jews in those regions. But for the first time now, the gospel has gone forth not just to Jews, but to Gentiles. So the first non-Jews have come to know Christ, and now there's a church in Antioch, which is outside of Judea and Samaria. It's this first church that has Gentiles in it. It's a church that's outside of the, what used to be the, the boundaries of Israel. And so this is a great moment for the church where it's now spread to the nation, so to speak. It's now spread beyond the borders of Judea and Samaria. And they've established this church in Antioch. There are leaders of the church. There are preachers in the church. There are, uh, it is well-established. People, people are there. They have a meeting place. And so the church is going, and it's going well in Antioch. And they're probably sitting there wondering and praying and saying, God, okay, we're here. The church is set up. The church is established. What now? Like, what next? I know some of you uh, and some of us as a church may be asking similar questions. On a, on a church perspective, our church has been around for about 25 years now, and, and we have people, we have a building, we have some systems and processes, and even though some things are changing, uh, we are pretty stable and set up as a church, and so some of us may be wondering, okay, what now? What next, God? And, and you may be wondering that for your own life as well. You're following the Lord, you're trying to, to do what's right, you're trying to do what he wants, and now you're sitting there wondering, God, okay, what now? What's next for me? Well, for the people that were following Wang Meng, uh, it turns out Wang Meng had no answers. <laughs> uh, he was a religious scholar and had, uh, knew nothing about running a government. And so uh, all he cared about was the kind of religious affairs of the nation. And so the, the, um, the actual uh, the role of an emperor uh, kind of fell through the cracks. All of the affairs of state fell through. And so he actually ended up getting deposed just a few years later because he was a horrible king, a horrible emperor. Uh, but thankfully, praise the Lord, that when we ask God, what's next? What do you have for us? What's the next step? God actually answers. Our God has answers, and they're good answers. God has a plan for us and a desire for our lives. God 
will tell us what's next. And we can see that answer here in this story. Well, our story starts in verse 25, where Barnabas and Saul come back from Jerusalem. Uh, they completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And they were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were wor- uh, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So we see here in uh, the first part of the story, what I just described, that they, they have set up as a church, they have leaders, they have teachers, they have preachers who are leading this church. They have everything in place to be a thriving, healthy body. And so they are doing really well as a church and they're coming together and they're praying and they're fasting and they're saying, God, what now? What's next? What do you have for us? What do you want us to do? And the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. I have a special calling on their life. This is what's next. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. So they do. They set apart Barnabas and Saul. And look with me in verse 3. What is it that the Holy Spirit has set apart Barnabas and Saul to do? Verse 3. After fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So what happens is they set apart Barnabas and Saul, they pray, they fast, they lay their hands on them, and then they launch them out. So the special calling on Barnabas and Saul's life is to get on a boat and to go sail to Cyprus, and then to go sail, uh, we find out later, to the next island of Salamis, to continue to go sailing to new places, to go bring the gospel to people who've never heard the gospel before. I notice with me in verse 5, what is it they're doing when they get on a boat? And what is it they're doing when they get on land? Verse 5, when they arrived at Salamis, that's the next island over, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So what Paul and Barnabas, what Saul and Barnabas were doing is they were getting on boats, they were traveling to new places, and they were proclaiming the word of God. They were proclaiming the gospel to people who have never heard it before. What God had set apart Saul and Barnabas to do and to be is what we would call a missionary. That he had set them apart to go plant churches and to go proclaim the gospel to people who have never heard the gospel before. So they go about proclaiming the gospel in Salamis. It's kind of the first first place that they do that. Now what strikes me in the way that Luke tells this story, and the way that he organizes it, the way that he orders it, is that when the Holy Spirit tells the church to set apart Saul and Barnabas for a special work, a special calling, we don't get a lot of indication of what that is. Right? The Holy Spirit doesn't say, set them apart so that they can go preach to people. Set them apart so that they can go share the gospel. Set them apart so that they can go somewhere. We find out later in the text that what they do is get on a boat and go proclaim the gospel. When the Holy Spirit sets them apart, the, the way that Luke tells the story, there's no special, uh, special instructions given at that particular uh, moment. And here's why that's important for us. It's because what's special about the ministry of Saul and Barnabas is not the fact that they were proclaiming the gospel. What's special about their ministry was not the fact that they were going out and they were telling people about the salvation that comes from Jesus Christ, from his death and his resurrection. That's not what's special. What's special is the fact that they were doing it in places that it's never been done before. Because the assumption 
is that wherever we go as Christians, we've already talked about this in the book of Acts, wherever we go as Christians, God is calling every single one of us to go tell people about Jesus, to go proclaim the gospel. Wherever it is that he sends us, wherever, wherever it is that we go, wherever it is that he's placed us, our job, our role, our responsibility is to go tell people about the salvation that they have in Jesus Christ. All of Scripture is a story about how God loves the world and is working to redeem it. About how God has, has a love for people who have rejected him and rebelled against him, and about how he is working in the world to save people through Jesus, about how he wants a relationship with every single one of us. He wants to pour out his love and his kindness and his grace upon every single one of us. And the fact that he redeems us and saves us and allows us to be adopted into his family and to be entered into his kingdom by the death and resurrection of his son. All of scripture is yelling at us that God loves the world and desires that people would come to know him. So when God places a church in a city, when God places us in a location, it is our job to go tell the world that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. God's heart, God's desire is that the people around us would come to know Jesus. And so our job, our role, what is assumed in the text is that we are proclaiming the gospel to the people that we come in contact with. What, what Paul and Barnabas do, what's special is not that they're sharing the gospel. It's that they're doing it somewhere new. There may be some of you here that have a, a special burden on your heart for people in a place that have never heard the gospel before. And I pray that there, there are people here. I pray that we as a church are raising up and sending out missionaries and supporting missionaries around the world. God may be burdening your heart for people in China who do not know the gospel and do not have anyone within any walking distance or any driving distance that can tell them the gospel. And so they could go their entire lives without ever hearing the fact that salvation has come for, in Jesus Christ, that they can have a restored relationship with God. God may be burdening your heart for people in the Middle East or in Africa or in parts of South America that have never heard the gospel, and people who are in remote villages and have no access to the gospel in any way, shape, or form, God may be burdening your heart for them to go share the gospel with people who have no access to the gospel and will die and spend forever separated from God in hell if they do not place their faith in Jesus. God may be giving you a special burden for them, and I pray that he is. And I pray that we would raise up and send out missionaries. But, but the truth of the matter is that most of us don't have that special burden. Most of us don't, don't feel a particular draw to go around the world, to go somewhere and to share the gospel with people who, who have no access to the gospel. Most of you are going to live most of your life in the United States. In fact, a lot of you are going to live your life here in Texas, and specifically here in North Texas, and that's okay. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But the ministry that God has called a missionary to is the same ministry he's calling you to. The only difference is location. God is sending out missionaries. God sent out Saul and Barnabas to go share the gospel with people who never heard it before. But God is sending you and I out as people, as residents of Roanoke and Trophy Club and surrounding areas to go share the gospel with the people on our streets, to go share the gospel with people in our workplace. It is our job, our responsibility to go proclaim the gospel, to let the people around us know that there's eternal life in Jesus. 
If you want to know what Jesus wants for you, if you want to know what God's plan is for you, if you want to know what's next, he's telling you to go share the gospel. To go lift up the name of Jesus in the world. Saul and Barnabas are doing just that, but then in verse 6, we see that they encounter some opposition. In verse 6, it says, When they had gone through the whole island, as far as as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. So this guy's named Bar-Jesus. We find out a a few verses later, uh, another version of his name is Elymas. And and Luke tells us this other version of his name because he wants to give us, uh, he wants to be very clear. Bar-Jesus is Aramaic for son of Jesus or son of Joshua. And Luke wants to be very clear. This guy, not a follower of Jesus. <laughs> this guy, not a son of God. <laughs> this guy is, is a false prophet, a magician, who is seeking to turn people's hearts and minds away from the Lord. Now, we, we, this is the second magician that we've encountered in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. We come across the first magician, and like the first magician, there's really no indication in the text of what, what they mean when they say magician, uh, of how, how he does his magic. There, there are two kind of main schools of thought. One, in this text, some people will say more boldly and more specifically and argue more uh, forcefully for it, but in this text, it could be that he's working with demonic forces to produce these powerful magical experiences. These, these big displays of supernatural power. Or it could be that he's, he's a, an old Middle Eastern version of Chris Angel who is performing these uh, illusions but, but trying to trick people and saying that he's magic. Either way, the reason that he's displaying this power, the reason that he's, he's passing himself off as a magician is because he's trying to turn people's hearts and minds away from God for his own personal gain. He's called a false prophet of Judaism. He is, a, he is someone who says he speaks for God. He's someone who's, who says that, that he's following the Lord, but in reality, he's turning people away. He's lying through his teeth and turning people away from God for his own gain. This is a guy that has gained enormous influence because of his magic and his false prophecies. This is a guy who has gained an enormous following because of what he's been able to do on the island. This is a guy that's probably gained an enormous amount of wealth because of showing off in these magic tricks and, and these powerful things. And, and so people have put a, a certain amount of authority and trust in him. So this is a guy that has gained a whole lot from his false prophecies and his magic. And it's all aimed for his benefit and for his goal. We find out in verse 7 that this uh, Elymas was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So, so here's a guy. Elymas is so powerful, is so influential on the island that he seems to have a regular connection with the, the governor, a regular connection with the leader of the island, the proconsul, the Roman authority that is over this entire island, and he seems to have a regular connection with him, a close enough connection that he's able to to speak to him and and guide him and advise him, and he has weight and authority there. So this is an imposing figure for Saul and Barnabas. This is a guy that has a stranglehold on the beliefs of the island. 
This is a guy that, that has displayed magic, a guy that has displayed cunning and lying in order to, to gain influence and authority, and he has a, a stranglehold on what the island believes, a stranglehold on what the island teaches, a stranglehold on what the island says. Like This is a guy with enormous power. He is an intense opposition to the progress of the gospel. Saul and Barnabas have every, uh, every reason here to think that their mission in Salamis is going to fail. Because they're coming across a strong opponent that will seem to cut off and throw off everything that they're doing. Sometimes when you and I are proclaiming the gospel, we encounter opposition. It could be opposition from, from within people. Our, our community, uh, or in the United States, our universities have adopted a, a, a naturalistic worldview which says that if you can't measure it, if you can't see it, if you can't, uh, can't get hard data on it, then it doesn't exist. So, so it's a, a belief that says there is no God. It's a belief that says there are no angels or demons. There's no spirit realm. There's no afterlife because you can't measure, you can't see those things. They only believe in things that, are, that you can naturally see and feel and touch and measure. And that belief, that naturalistic worldview has seeped into Western thought and our culture. So more and more people that we come in contact with, more and more people that we come across don't believe in God, don't believe in spiritual things. And when we try to share the gospel, when we, when we illuminate the, the salvation that comes from Jesus, there's growing hostility to the, the gospel that we proclaim. That belief has a stranglehold on our culture. In fact, in, in our own community, if you try to share the gospel with someone who does not go to church, is not part of any church, there's at least a 30% chance that that person doesn't believe in God at all and doesn't believe in spiritual things. And there's a pretty decent chance out of those people that they're going to be antagonistic to the gospel and antagonistic to the church. This naturalistic worldview has a strong grip on what the people around us believe. And so when we try to proclaim the gospel, we face opposition. There are people in other nations, missionaries, that are out proclaiming the gospel, trying to plant churches in countries where the government itself is coming and trying to stamp out Christianity. There's some in East Asia, some in the Middle East, who are trying to, to share the gospel and see people come to know Christ and, and proclaim salvation in Jesus to people who've never heard it before, but the government is coming behind them and trying to, to wipe out the churches. There's intense opposition to those Christians and those missionaries. Sometimes, when we proclaim the gospel, we face opposition. And a lot of times, when we, when we go to share the gospel, we're scared. And we end up not sharing it at all we're worried about the opposition that's going to come our way. Maybe they won't like what we have to say. Maybe they'll be offended by it. Maybe they'll be upset about it. Maybe something outside of us will, will come and, and provide opposition, but we are afraid to share the gospel because we're afraid that this opposition is going to be too strong. And our gospel presentation, our sharing the good news, is ultimately going to fail because the opposition against us is just way too strong. That person, so-and-so, they're never going to know Jesus. They're never going to put their faith in him. This coworker of mine that uh, is anti-Christianity and hates everything about us, they're never going to come to know Christ. It feels like the opposition is just so strong 
something that we can't overcome. And, and Saul and Barnabas have every reason to believe that in this case. They have every reason to think that their mission will fail in Salamis with how strong their opponent is. But look with me in verse 9. Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? So Saul looks right at him, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, he calls him out for what he is. He calls him out as a false prophet. He calls him out as a son of the enemy, a son of the devil. And he calls him out, and he, he, he shines a light on what it is that Elymas is trying to do in opposing the message of the gospel. I love Paul. <laughs> I love the way that he talks. I love uh, his, uh, his letters. So if you read Paul's letters in the New Testament, which make up a good bulk of our New Testament, uh, he, he has some sarcastic moments. He's very sarcastic in some of his letters. Sometimes he's very upfront and bold like he is here. And that's not his normal stance. A lot of times he's more humble, more reserved, uh, more peaceable. But sometimes when he needs to be, he'll get up and he'll get in your face. I mean, I, this is a guy that, that, again, is sarcastic. This is a guy that cusses twice in the Bible. I mean, this is a guy that, like, he has some, some really funny moments, some really strong communication. And, and this is one of those examples where he steps up and he looks Elmas in the face and he says, you son of the devil, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? So I want to notice, this is now the third time that the Holy Spirit is mentioned in this passage. You look in verse, uh, verse 2. It says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. You look in verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And then again in verse 9, Saul, who's also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and called him out on his, his sinfulness. So when Saul and Barnabas went to Salamis to proclaim the gospel, they didn't go alone. When Saul and Barnabas went to go share the gospel of Jesus Christ, when they went to go invite people to come to know him, they didn't go by themselves. They were sent out in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit carried them there. The Holy Spirit went with them, and the Holy Spirit empowered their response to the opposition. They didn't go alone. Because if they were alone, the opposition that they faced was way too strong for them. They would never succeed in Salamis. But they didn't go alone. They went with the Holy Spirit. When you and I proclaim the gospel, when we go share the good news of salvation to the people around us, we're not doing it alone. We're doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit in this passage is the same Holy Spirit that resides in every single believer. And so when we go out and do exactly what God has called us to do in going and sharing the gospel, we go out in the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that we see in this passage. And look how powerful the Holy Spirit is. Verse 11, Paul says, And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. So here, the Holy Spirit exposes the brokenness, the Holy Spirit exposes the sinfulness and the rebellion of, uh, that Elymas is, is living by. 
And it's this really ironic moment that, that Elymas is trying to lead the people away from God. He's trying to, to lead people and blind them to the truth of who Jesus is. And now the Holy Spirit comes in and blinds Elymas. And says, you're not leading anybody anywhere. <laughs> and he immediately seeks for people to lead him by the hand because he's no longer a leader. He's no longer someone with influence. He's no longer someone who has a grip and power over the, over the island of Salamis. The Holy Spirit stepped up and overpowered the power. He stepped up and overpowered the opposition. And notice what happened in verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And so Saul and Barnabas had a successful ministry in Salamis because the Holy Spirit overpowered the opposition. Nothing, not even Elemas, was strong enough to withstand the power of the Holy Spirit. Nothing could stop the advance of the gospel. Nothing was too powerful for God. And notice what saved the proconsul. It wasn't this miracle of blinding Elemas. Notice in the second part, the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It always comes back to the gospel. This whole thing, the whole blinding of Elemas, this whole overpowering of opposition, it wasn't just to, to make a display of force, and, and it wasn't just to, to, to put a big middle finger to God's enemies. Like, like this, this wasn't this big, uh, big show of power. The reason that it happened is so that the gospel could go forth. So the word of God could go across the island of Salamis and people could come to place their faith in Jesus because the heart of God is that people would come to know him. God's desire is that the people around us would place their faith in Jesus. And so nothing could come against Saul and Barnabas that was going to be too powerful for the Holy Spirit. That's, that's what I want us to see this morning. Nothing can come against you that's more powerful than the Holy Spirit. So keep proclaiming the gospel. Nothing can come against you that is a stronger opponent, that is so strong and so powerful that everything you do is going to fail, that nothing is going to come against you that is going to be worth stopping proclaiming the gospel. Nothing can come against you more powerful than the Holy Spirit. So do what God has called you to do and go proclaim the gospel. As I said, as a church and as individuals, you may be wondering, what's next? What is God calling us to do as a body? What is God calling me to do? And we, we go before God with these big life decisions like, God, tell me what I need to do with my job. Tell me what I need to do with my, uh, with my college choices. Tell me what I need to do with my kids, with school to put them in. Tell me what I need to do with, with where I live. Do I need to move? Do I need to stay here? And we approach God with these big life decisions and say, God, what is it? that you are calling me to do? What is it that you want me to do? And we lay these before God, and there's nothing wrong with that. Those are great questions to ask, but those are not necessarily the things that God is concerned about. Because what, what matters more to God is not where you live or what your job is. What matters more to God is that you're doing what he's called you to do, and that is lifting up the name of God in the world, that is going and proclaiming the gospel. Whether you live in Roanoke, or Minneapolis, has very little to do with whether you're glorifying God. But whether you're sharing the gospel matters a lot. What God is calling you to do is not necessarily 
to move or to change your job or to do anything big like that. What God is calling you to do is to share the gospel with people around you, to organize your life in a way that lifts up the name of Jesus. If you can lift up Jesus at one job, then do that. Or if you can go share the gospel and have more opportunities at a different job, then go do that. If you can share the gospel in Roanoke or Trophy Club, then be here and share the gospel on your street. If you can go share the gospel in Minneapolis, then go to Minneapolis and share the gospel there. If you have a burden on your heart for people in Iran who have no access to the gospel, then go proclaim the gospel in Iran. What God's concerned about, what he's calling us to do, what's next is that we're going out and sharing the salvation that we have in Jesus with the people around us. So we need to organize our lives around that mission of seeing people come to know God, of proclaiming the gospel to the people around us. Some of us, as I mentioned, when we go to proclaim the gospel, we, we're scared and we're timid, and we're, we're, uh, we don't end up sharing the gospel. We don't end up engaging people about the salvation that comes from Jesus Christ because we're, we're nervous about what's going to come against us, what's going to happen as a result. Maybe they won't like it. Maybe they'll hate it. Maybe something outside of us is going to come against us. But we, we're scared and we're nervous. But this passage reminds us that nothing is more powerful than the Holy Spirit who is with us when we go to proclaim the gospel. So there's no reason not to go and continue to share the gospel with the people around you. There's nothing so powerful that should stop us from sharing Jesus. And that doesn't mean that you'll be successful everywhere you go. That doesn't mean that you won't face any opposition. It doesn't mean any of that at all. But it means that there is nothing so powerful in the world, no opposition that we face, nothing that is so powerful that it should stop us from doing what God has called us to do, and that's sharing the gospel with the people around us. Are you doing what God has called you to do? Are you organizing your life to see the people around you coming to know Jesus? Are you praying for your neighbors and your coworkers? Are you, are you looking for opportunities to guide the conversation to gospel-centered things, to spiritual conversations so that you can speak life into them and, and introduce them to Jesus, to the salvation that you have, the hope and the life that you found? Are you doing what God has called you to do? Because if not, the next step for you this morning is simple and easy. Go proclaim the gospel. Go do what God has called you to do. Some of you this morning, before you can go proclaim the gospel, you need to experience it for yourselves. Before you can go tell people about the forgiveness of sins and the life that is found in the death and resurrection of Jesus, you need to be forgiven of your sins. And you you need to come to life in Christ. This morning, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. In just a second, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. And as we're singing, I'm going to be standing right here. If that's you, and you want to place your faith in Jesus for the very first time, you want to experience the gospel that is worth sharing, then I would love to pray with you, and then we have people that would love to talk with you more about what it means to follow Jesus. So if that's you, do not leave here this morning without knowing just how much God loves you, and without experiencing the relationship with God that he is calling you to have the one that he sent his son Jesus to die for. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you
for the eternal life that we have in Jesus. I thank you for the hope and the joy that we have in him. God, I, I, I pray that every single person in here would know what it's like to have a relationship with you. God, that every single person in here would know what it's like to be your child, to know what it's like to be part of your kingdom, to know what it's like to have life. So God, I pray if there's anybody here this morning who does not know you and has never experienced your love, God, I pray this morning would be the morning that they go from death to life. And God, I pray for all of us that have gone from death to life, all of us that have experienced the gospel. God, give us a burning passion and a desire for the people around us to come to know you. Spark a fire in our hearts. Give us boldness as we go proclaim the gospel. Father, we love you and praise you. It's in the precious holy name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Again, if that's you and you want to place your faith in Jesus for the very first time, I would love for you to just come up here. Let me pray for you. And then we have people that would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus. Let's stand and let's sing together.